For years, we've been hearing a lot about objective journalism. If ever there was a myth that should be shattered, it should be now. And one of the shatterers of that myth is one of the most remarkable journalists in the country today, Hunter S. Thompson, described as the master of gonzo journalism. We'll hear more about that later. Hunter Thompson is my guest. He's the roving correspondent, you might say, for Rolling Stone. And his most recent book, that soon to be published, is Fear and Loathing in, uh, Along the Campaign Trail, 72. That Random House, or Straight Arrow will publish. Straight Arrow will publish. I'm thinking of Hunter Thompson and his writing. That is real, so real as our times are, and Hunter seated now. Six years ago, he was a guest on the program. First time, first time on the, in radio it was for Hunter Thompson. He's here now, and each of us has a, a little beer with us, but mostly Hunter's memories and thoughts. Suppose we go back and hear what you said some six years ago. It was a book about Hell's Angels, and the question is, uh, where have we gone, up or down, the six years, and uh, has Hell's Angels, have they taken over? And so this is six years ago, 1966, is it? 1967, when Hunter Thompson is, is talking about Hell's Angels. You know, there are very few people in this country. I, don't, I imagine 1% who could actually, well, very, even less than that, I don't know what percentage, who could hold up a book and say, look, they wrote a book about me. You know, it's like Faulkner saying, I made my mark on the wall. Kilroy was here. Yeah. And uh, now they have this. It's a monument to them. I suppose it's my fault, but that wasn't my concern. I was just asked to write a truthful book, and I tried to yeah. write how it was. But they were also becoming celebrated thanks to uh, the weeklies and thanks to... Oh, yeah, to, well, they know, were celebrities long before I got yes, hold of this. But they, as a result of which, you have a funny, to me, very funny, when Sonny Bargars asked his opinions. Well, what do you think of Vietnam? Uh, what do you think of civil rights? This is the point. He's a celebrity. Yeah. Like a used car dealer mentioned often in a column, become celebrity. What do you think of... Uh, well, like the uh, Mad uh, Bomber in New York. Yeah. The Boston Strangler, yeah. it's that sort of thing. And therefore they ask their opinions about the oh, world. Oh, yes, of course. It doesn't matter whether they have any sense or not. Let's, or hear, let's hear, if we hear my friend, he's sort of an ex-prize fighter. As he said, he took an oath before God, though I'm an agnostic, he says, I took an oath before the high court never to do an honest day's work in my life to take money away from the unqualified dilettantes earned through nepotism. And they're all unqualified. Because <laughs> they need us. And, they, and I hear he's talking. We can hear him. Oh, yeah. so guys like me in my element, they either want to ostracize us from our society or put off off somewhere. They want to give us a job. To find a place in the sun for myself, for my brother, or people like myself, or my element, we have to fight for it. Now, they don't like this. Yet they're the same people who read fiction and believe it. So why shouldn't we take it from them? Legally, with the semi-muscle. The greatest thing is the semi-muscle. It can get you killed, but if you work it right, there's nothing strong in the world. Use the marvelous phrase. You didn't say muscle. You said semi-muscle, semi -muscle. which makes it legal. Legal, sure. You put that fear in them that they will help them. Here's a, here's a good example. They're usually in debt to someone. Someone owns them money. They're extremely fond of someone. Someone's cutting in on their girl. Their wife is an infidelist. Uh, there are all kinds of conditions. They're afraid. Everybody's scared. So what do you do then? You find out what their weakness is? Exactly, and I give them the security that they don't have. As an example, if their wife is an infidelitist, I muscle the guy that she's making love with. I run him off. If somebody owns him money, I go collect the money. If he owns somebody money, somebody's after him, I chase him away. See? So now this guy is in your debt. Not only in debt to me, he's, the truth of the matter is he's probably, he's probably made the biggest mistake of his life. He should have really paid him because now I've got him for the rest of his life. I'll always nudge him for some currency or another. I'll always go into him. Because you're the guy who either muscled this guy off his wife or in one way or another saved his ego. Is that exactly. it? Exactly, and there are so many people so insecure that it's absolutely amazing. You just can't imagine. Just can't imagine how many insecure people we have in this country. Everybody's scared of something. Are you scared of something? Absolutely nothing. I'm an agnostic to be good with. So nothing frightens you? Nothing else. Not a thing frightened me. Let's go back to this. How do you know? How do you meet these people? Uh, you know, for by one thing, they, they must have money. Is that right? Yes, but by reputation. And it's amazing. I've got some good publicity as a price fighter in the newspapers, and I've gotten some bad publicity in the newspapers also. Now, people believe what they read. But I can't stop every pedestrian on the street and tell them my side of the story. It's always a two side of a story. Stuts. And there's always a two-way street. As long as with these people who think this way, it's a one-way street with them. So leave them think that way. 
My brother was in trouble recently. I'll give you a good example. All the newspapers had him on the front page. He was on television. He was scared. I says, you fool, you'll go out and raise all the money in the world. He came back in a week. He says, you know, I raised 14000 I says, you can make it twenty-eight. Why 14 Double it. People want to help people, especially tough guys. They need you. They believe There's the land. They need, and he spoke of his brother, held a handkerchief over his face, accused of being a juice man. He says, you fool, you've been on television. You're a celebrity now. And thus we come to the Hells Angels. What was he accused of? Hmm? What was he accused of? Oh, being a juice man or something, you know. But to we come back to Hells Angels again, now they uh, became celebrities. Isn't, you know? this, isn't this the part? Well, that's what he, was, what he says is true there. This guy's operating on a, a much more sophisticated level. And just from listening to him talk, you can yeah. tell that he is a lot sharper and more sophisticated yeah. than a lot of the angels, and almost all of them. But uh, probably, well, quite a few of the angels graduate into this kind of uh, white tie kind of hoodlum underworld. And they're, they don't go back around the angels because they're, they're, they're sophisticated criminals, the hardcore cons. And now they become also, in a sense, a bit more respectable, too. Criminal, but respectable. Oh, yeah. They, then yeah. People don't dump on them anymore. Yeah. You know, people aren't uh, calling them scurvy bums and get this garbage out of here. When they so go. that's six years ago with Hunter Thompson, my guest this morning. Your thoughts on, on hearing yourself talk and uh, my uh, acquaintance talk. It's now 1973, and you've written Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. You've run for sheriff and almost one of Aspen. Your thoughts, Hunter Thompson, uh, on hearing this. Where are we six years? Where are we gone? Oh, well, hmm. A long way. Like, a lot of things have changed in six years. First, that whole era died, I think, that... that uh, what I think Donovan once called that... Uh, free-falling era mm-hmm. of the, the 60s where people really did believe that if you were right, decent, and wore flowers in your hair, you'd prevail. But the angels have now gotten heavily into uh, uh, serious drug sales, and Barger just went through one trial for murder, and he went through another one. I should point out Sonny Barger is the head of angels. Of the yeah, right. uh, The angels have changed. It, uh, there's no more that kind of ho-ho thing on the road where you go out and freak... Uh, the straights, mm-hmm. uh, they're, they're too obvious. They're, they're dealing in cars now, they're selling drugs. What I'm thinking of now, Hunter, and you're the best guy to talk about it, is uh, you covered the last presidential election campaign. That's the basis of your forthcoming book. They're very much like the Hells Angels. That's the point I'm asking you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, has the Hells Angels approach to life now taken over in a broader way in our, in our society? It always was. That's what I was trying to say when I was first in here. I never could quite get it straight that the angels themselves weren't important. It was the uh, the ethic that they were, you know, representing. It was the people with nothing to lose, and you see that in a presidential campaign where, you know, it sort of balls out, and uh, when you lose, like McGovern did, you really lose. It's that power thing where you. It's all or nothing, you know, and you get that with the angels. You get it in big-time politics, maybe not in local politics. I'm thinking just as you're talking about uh, in the Rolling Stone, there's been this remarkable coverage of yours, Nicholas von Hoffman, among other speakers, used the most singular coverage of the campaign uh, because now we come to the question of you. You know, the phrase we use a lot, subjective journalism is against object... Well, I say to you, objective journalism. First thought comes to your mind. Objective journalism. That's a nice notion. There's a, uh, in the current Columbia Journalism Review on the back page, uh, Wes Gallagher, the, uh, uh, what, he's the business manager, or the president of uh, AP, says uh, that to say that a journalist can't be objective is like saying a judge can't be uh, uh, fair. But the very argument he makes is, is belied by the fact that almost no good paper uses the AP anymore except as fillers and uh, emergency stuff. Has there ever been any such thing as objective journalism, or unless a person's a thing? I mean, doesn't isn't every journalism I think it's part of the highest kind of journalism, if you can do it, but nobody that I know has ever done it. And uh, I don't have enough time to learn. I think it'd take about four lifetimes. Now think about yourself. You describe a perfect case in point. Uh, in the July issue, July 20th Rolling Stone, this will be part of your book, uh, you describe a scene. You're in a hotel in New York, and you talk about Aside from the campaign, McGovern and Nixon and uh, 
uh, the makers and shakers of the campaign and the deals and the wheeling that you described beautifully. You also speak of your own adventures with a snake. And someone said, did this happen? Didn't it happen? Let's talk about that. You had a snake, so the story goes, so you wrote. And something happened to that snake. Yeah, I was killed at Random House. We've had, I've had trouble with him ever since. Uh, it's a kind of a, it's a weird psychological undercurrent in all of our dealings. I got the snake at a, uh, an alligator farm in Florida. I wanted to wrestle an alligator, and the guy said, no, you can't do that. And uh, so I ended up having just to buy a snake. And then he disappeared down uh, a toilet in Florida. And uh, I thought he was gone. He had, and he came back up the same toilet about four days later. Mm -hmm. but I, I mean, while I was in New York. So uh, the people whose toilet came back up sent it to me. And it got out of a, it was a, got a six foot blue indigo. A very intelligent snake, harmless, totally harmless. Mm -hmm. And it got out of the uh, bag, they sent it one of those airline bags, and it got out at uh, Idlewild down, I guess, Kennedy. And some stewardess volunteered to bring it into Random House with a hit, head poking out. It, mm -hmm. it had uh, scared the hell out of them. And so when I got in there, I figured, well, we'll put a, a mouse in the box with it and put a big you know, Random House dictionary on top of the box and feed the bugger, you know, leave him here overnight. Uh -huh. He didn't take him to the hotel. Uh -huh. But the mouse figured it out, you know, what was going to happen to him. So the mouse chewed through the cardboard box. And the snake went right through the hole, the same hole after the mouse. And at about uh, dawn the next day, the uh, late watchman uh, came out to the white marble stairs in Random House looking across at what was then Cardinal Spelman's headquarters and saw this horrible six-foot blue-black serpent coming up the stairs at him. Uh, I'm sure he'd never seen any, any animal bigger than a roach or a rat. Mm -hmm. And so he got uh, part of a vacuum cleaner and uh, for about 20 minutes fought this serpent in the lobby. I, I like to have seen it. Uh, it killed it. And then but had, had a nervous breakdown of some kind and uh, was retired. But Random House still owes me a good snake. And so as a result of which you not worried about expense accounts because because of Random House you lost your snake. That's right. I've run up about $22,000 on that snake. Yeah. Well now see the question will come up and this is the question. Did you actually have a snake or is it in your imagination? And some people ask me this and I say does it really matter? Isn't, don't we live in a surrealistic time now, you see? Well, we probably do, but I, I had the snake and every, one of the, every, every word of that is true. Oh, you literally, you literally had a snake. Oh, of course. Yeah. See, now, I read this as though you'd made it up, but it didn't matter. You see, the, I'm thinking of the campaign itself and the world we live in right now. It'd probably be more cheerful for a lot of people if they thought I'd just made all this stuff yeah. up, but no, that was, that's all true. Yeah. And if I could, you don't like to read your own stuff. and I'd like oh, to I can't. For some reason, it so doesn't read right. Allow me as ham that I am, read a paragraph, get an example of Hunter Thompson's writing. The battle, this between the watchman and the snake, lasted some 20 minutes, a terrible clanging and screaming in the empty marble entranceway, and finally the watchman prevailed. Both the serpent and the vacuum tube were beaten beyond recognition, and later that morning, a copy editor found the watchman slumped on a stool in the basement next to the Xerox machine, still gripping the mangled tube, unable to say what was wrong with him except that something terrible had tried to get him, but he finally managed to kill it. The man has since retired, they say. Cardinal Spellman died, and Random House moved to a new building, but the psychic scars remain, a dim memory of corporate guilt that is rarely mentioned except in times of stress or in arguments over money. Every time I start feeling a bit uneasy of running up huge bills on the Random House tab, I think about that snake, and then I call room service again. <laughs> yeah, like I say, we're up to about 22 grand on that snake. And uh, I still haven't done that book on the 68 yeah, but, political campaign. But you understand my position as a reader of, of your work. Aside, by I can the see way, how you might have some trouble believing it, but unfortunately, every word of that's true. No, my point is, it's even more powerful if we're untrue. That is literally, it's, see, to me, this is true. We live in a world right now where strange things are happening, see. So it's just as important, even if it didn't happen. Well, so strange, it happens it didn't in this case. Many things, that, that's mild, that's, yeah. that's normal. That's like, and uh, that same, the same issue you speak of uh, buying, uh, how trying to get uncommitted delegates. This is in, now, un, and you describe a scene, perhaps you could talk about that, in which a guy named J.D. Squain. Uh, that's, a, that's a made up name. Yeah, but he's trying to get a delegate and he's trying to get this delegate, and he says he's going to meet him, and a silver-haired, beautiful girl's at the door. Would you mind describing, you remember, you remember that moment you wrote about, here again, I questioned, did it happen or didn't it, but it did, you know, in my well, mind it, at least. It probably happened about a thousand times. Yeah. 
There's some very eerie lines in there that I, I picked out going over when I put putting into the book about skeletons in your closet, a lawyer from St. Louis, mm -hmm. which uh, turned out to be uh, kind of heinously prophetic with Eagleton and skeletons mm -hmm. in the closet. Mm -hmm. But actually, it almost looks like I wrote that thing after that. You, know, that, that. you get that kind of pressure at conventions. That's what I mean. Could I ask Hunter, because you're, you're quite a marvelous writer, a journalist, and as you mentioned Eagleton and skeleton in the closet, the phrase used uh, was asked by uh, Mankiewicz, apparently, of him. You're, you're talking about literal. See, you make literal that which is psychic in our lives. But the weird thing is that I, I said that even before Mankiewicz asked yeah. Eagleton. It's yeah. exactly the same phrase. Yeah. And I even picked St. Louis out of nowhere for some reason. Yeah. I, I don't know why. Well, so, see, we're living at a certain moment. Now, since you covered the campaign, <laughs> you covered way in the beginning, didn't you? Uh, this campaign, you covered the 72 campaign. Where did you start? You began... Well, I moved to Washington for some reason, which I never did quite figure out. I had, for some, I had some idea that in order to cover the campaign, you had to go, go to Washington. So I went, th went there from Colorado. It was back, I guess, November of 71, when Muskie was the... Uh, the assumption then uh, was that we had to have somebody who, who could beat Nixon. I yeah. say we in this general yeah. sense of the opposition. And uh, everybody said, well, uh, Big Ed can do it. And uh, all you had to do was take one look at Big Ed and see that he wasn't going to beat anybody. Well, you described some remarkable scenes involving Big Ed and the guy, uh, the great boohoo, yeah. strange events. Peter Sheridan, yeah, that's yeah. a hell of a scene. But also, now here's the part. Before, Hunter Thompson, by the way, aside from being a in the best sense of the word, an advocate journalist, a word I happen to like, because it's subjective at the same time covers the events. Also, it has a tape of a paraplegic vet. We'll play it in a moment. But I thought, in the 1968 campaign, you find yourself riding in the back of a car with Richard Nixon. Now, why were you chosen? This is, here are you, outrageously dressed by their standards, dangerous in a sense. Could oh, you describe, hostile, why'd hostile. you set that scene? This is 1968 in New Hampshire. Is that it? Yeah, I, I remember arriving at the Holiday Inn and, and Pat Buchanan, the speechwriter, who was then sort of uh, doing the out front muscle work and also speechwriting. Well, that, that was when they were still calling Nixon the boss. Maybe they still do in private. Is that the phrase used, the boss? Oh, they are the boss. Mm -hmm. and all, all of his campaign appearances were drills. Mm -hmm. Like, what's the drill for today? What, what, drill, oh, is, what, what drill is a boss doing today? That's Say that slowly again. Uh, the, the, the word used is a drill? Drill, right. A drill. And if you go somewhere to make a speech or mm. you know, shake hands, you know, the boss is doing a drill at 12.30 at the uh, Zingling Diner in uh, Nashua, New Hampshire, that kind of thing. Uh -huh. So the press would be taken along to watch the boss do his drills. That was the language they used. But uh, when it was over, and then after Romney had bombed out and, and uh, Rockefeller hadn't come in, it was clear that Nixon was going to win in New Hampshire. And I've been trying to get, a, like everybody else, a, sort of a private interview with him for a long time. And there was no way. He just couldn't get anywhere near him. They'd hustle him through the lobby every morning at, at high speed with the big phalanx of people around him. And finally, uh, I don't know why it happened, but Buchanan, or no, it was Ray Price, uh, the other speechwriter, came up to me and said, uh, I hate to say this, Hunter, but uh, the boss wants to talk football. And I've tried uh, everybody else in the press corps, and they don't know football at all. And uh, I know you do, but you have to promise not to talk about anything else except football. Like you can't mention Vietnam. You can't mention people being gassed. You can't mention people being beaten. You have to. T in this was, it was midnight. We we're heading back to uh, his Learjet. This is '68, New Hampshire. Yeah, mm -hmm. it was right at, th right at the end. It was mm -hmm. he, he was home free. Mm -hmm. So we had about an hour back from wherever, whatever town it was, on the Massachusetts Turnpike. It was about 10 below, and I knew what would happen if I mentioned anything except football. I'd be put out in the damned uh, freeway. So uh, Richard and I sat in the back and uh, talked football while the cop and Price and Buchanan sat up front and didn't say a word, it's, but they were waiting. You know, like Any minute this lunatic will say something about Vietnam. At that point, I, I knew the, this big yellow mercury would come to a screeching halt. He put out on the turnpike, middle of you know fr frozen night. And uh, the odd thing is that I kind of enjoyed it. He really knows football. Nixon is a stone freak. <laughs> this is the point, perhaps that uh, which things tie together. See your snake story. That someone say, "Oh, Hunter Thompson made that up." It so happens it's true. It doesn't matter. That is the your conversation in the back of the car with the presidential candidate, the president. Doesn't. 
and the serious talk about football is, is as surreal as the snake story. But it's also it's just, just as true. Yeah, that's Absolutely. the point. That's very true. Isn't this what we're faced with now? That the line of, that fantasy and fact become one. Somebody said that in an essay in a partisan review or one of those uh, sort of atavistic uh, reviews that uh, that reality had become so weird yeah. that fiction was no longer plausible. You had to get into, into journalism just in order yeah. to keep up with the madness. Yeah. Well, I believe that. Yeah. Like Catch-22 today would be considered a documentary, wouldn't it? Not a satirical now, but a documentary, isn't it? Well, because it was in the first yeah, place. It was a documentary. Because, right, the guys are bombing me. Says, Those guys are shooting back at us. Why are they doing that? Isn't it? So in a sense, it's, it's, this is your approach, isn't it, then? To, well, I suppose you describe your, your, your way well, of covering the campaign, what you do. Well, it's hard to actually, you know, yeah. wrap it up, but it, it's uh, clearly it's very subjective. And I think that one of the great mistakes I made in, the, in this Rolling Stone coverage was assuming that I was doing supplementary coverage for people who were reading the, you know, the straight papers all the time. And as the campaign drew to a close or when it was over, I was uh, made aware that most of the readers had never read anything else about the campaign at all. They must have had a very strange idea of what, what the hell was going on in terms of presidential politics. But my, my idea was to, uh, in thinking in terms of supplemental coverage, to uh, do a totally subjective view and as, as much a participatory kind of gig as I, as I could. But it's hard to participate in a campaign when you're not, when you're a journalist, because they, uh, they had a kind of a, gro a great fear of seeing what, what they'd tell me show up in the newsstands two weeks later. And I did things like say that nothing is off the record and I would violate confidences and uh, well, without any devious sort of thing. I, I think that's the way it should be done. I think journalism should be that way. As a result of which, you see your writing in, in Rolling Stone and uh, between covers of this forthcoming Straight Arrow book, Fear the Title, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail 72, tells us more about the people involved and power and how power is used power on both is, sides. That's the word. That's that's where it all lies. And that's, that's you know, power corrupts, but it's also, that's a cliche, but it's also a fantastic high. And there's nothing that I've ever been into, any kind of drug or anything else that compares to that, that kind of high you get off of almost any kind of a political campaign, but particularly a presidential yeah. campaign. That's interesting. Power is the great high. Oh, yeah. Edward Bennett Williams said that. I, I remember I flew out to... Uh, San Francisco with him on Christmas Day in 71. And I'd just been thrown out of the press box and uh, the Redskins This is the lawyer, owner of Washington Redskins and... Uh, yeah, he's a legendary trial lawyer. Go ahead. And uh, the week before, I'd been thrown out of the press box at uh, the Redskins Stadium for not taking my hat off during the national anthem. And uh, I, w I was in sort of a rage about that. So I, I went out, the Redskins were playing the 49ers in the playoffs, and I thought, well, I want to go out and see them stomped, you know, just to get back at the buggers for throwing me into the press box at halftime of that game. And so I ended up sitting next to the owner of the Redskins on the way out. And I remember saying to him, uh, tomorrow, the hammer, you buggers. <laughs> you threw me out, you know, I'm, 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 yeah, I'm the, the, uh, the karma here is gonna break you down. Just kind of kidding him. And then, but then it turned out he was working for Muskie. And I was, uh, uh, even then, very strongly against Muskie. And we went through about, he was trapped, I had him for about five or six hours in the, in the you know, two seats in the first class compartment, drinking the whole time. And he said finally that, uh, after we'd kind of settled down, that uh, there's only one real game in this country, that's politics. All the rest are kids' games. That comes from a guy who's played a lot of, yeah. a lot of games. It's funny, you know, Ellsberg uh, talks about this a great deal. The guys at Rand or the others, they want to hang around, be part of it. They're not, they're impotent themselves, but they want to take that part of power and they walk the corridors with great ones. And that's the high. He speaks of that continuously, as though they were, you know, breaking pencils. And so this is part of it. Nothing, it's beyond any drug. Yeah. It's, it's like a, you know, a four month mescaline trip, which I never had, thank God. It'd be very exhausting. But, well, the campaign was a 16 month trip. So I, I suppose the word power trip then. Yeah, you're playing for the highest stakes you can in this country. And you're playing publicly. Yeah. And every day it changes and you know, it's, it's like a monster game. Yeah. 
And it's Hunter S. Thompson I'm talking to. Doctor, by the way, the heading is Dr. Hunter. I like the word doctor. Doctor of DGS, Doctor of Gonzo Journalism. You describe, what is Gonzo Journalism? Oh, boy. It's How do essentially what we, I was just muttering about a minute ago, the, I guess the key words would be subjectivity, total subjectivity, uh, out front bias, and, uh, but. Out front bias. Oh, yeah. yeah. Just, you have to sort of say what you think. But uh, participation, I think, is the, is the key word. Where you you become, you are a part of the story. You're not covering yeah. it. You're not watching it. You get into it. Yeah. Which was always frustrating to me during the campaign because in a tight thing like that, playing for that kind of stakes, it's kind of hard to tell Frank Megowitz that I should be included in the uh, you know, the secret meeting to select uh, McGovern's running mate. Although if I had been, they'd have been better off because I was one of the few people <laughs> who. Uh, well, in a way, Stapleton. Well, what uh, Hunter is also what you say to me too is something else here is that we leave it to the specialists who decide who are the experts. You're really saying then the experts we believe in so much, whether they be the high office in the land or the big shots, are not really experts at By all. By the time you have to be an expert, you're just a yeah. uh, artifact. Yeah. By the time you're recognized, that's that's one of the great. Troubles, I think, with uh, you know journalists and writers in this yeah. country. But by the time people begin to say, "Oh yes, I know him. He's good," yeah. by that time he's uh, yeah. Christ over the hill good. and out of his head, writing gibberish, repeating yeah. himself. No longer, uh, if we go back to Sonny Barger of the Hell's Angels, or no longer a celebrity, too. We'll come to that. Well, he's but still a celebrity. Yeah, on trial for repeated uh, for murder. Oh, Sonny Barger is. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, by the way, that, that makes him a celebrity, doesn't he? The whole thing. He's on trial for murder, therefore well, he's a celebrity, murders, as yeah. Charles Manson is a celebrity, too. Oh, yeah, but he's yeah. in a much more serious way. Yeah. So we take a slight pause with Hunter S. Thompson as my guest and uh, the forthcoming book. He's the, how would you describe your roving correspondent for Rolling Stone? Uh, well, the title on the masthead is National Affairs Editor, but I have to drop the editor somehow because I'm getting right. the strangest mail that anybody could ever get. Yeah. People uh, decide that uh, if Thompson's crazy and he can work for Rolling Stone, then... Uh, <laughs> I can, too. Right, and uh, I should send my stuff to Thompson. <laughs> so I get uh, 10 or 12, really, and twisted the, manuscripts every day. Uh, and and the book it's, re it's breaking me down. <laughs> and the book will be forthcoming, Fear and Loathing, along the campaign trail, 72 Straight Arrow, who are connected with uh, Rolling Stone or the publishers. We'll return in a moment to ask Hunter about... Uh, well, we're going to hear the voice of a young paraplegic veteran that he recorded and he'll set the scene. And also maybe his reactions, uh, thoughts, reflections on running as sheriff in Aspen. More of this in a moment. Resuming the conversation with Hunter Thompson and uh, Fear and Loathing. Oh, the way, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, the previous book. How'd, how'd you come across the uh, title? Now, it's, this is Fear and Loathing along the Campaign Trail 72. Well, that really is a story. I guess Dave Felton over here probably, probably be able to tell you more about it than how did it come about. It was a total accident. Yeah. I went out there to cover a motorcycle race and uh, for Sports Illustrated. And that didn't seem to work. You know, I couldn't see it because there was too much dust. And I took this crazy uh, lawyer out there with me, this friend of mine from L.A., and we got all bent and twisted and crazy. And Las Vegas itself seemed to be more of a story. But I was writing that at the same time I was writing another very serious piece about the L.A. Sheriff's Department killing a, a Chicano journalist. And I just sort of kept, every night when I'd finish the other one, it would get too heavy to keep on about 6 o'clock. I'd spend about two hours just having fun with this Vegas thing, you know, this strange tale of two people gone mad. And it uh, just kept growing and growing. Well, the words, you know, fear and loathing are not accidental words. We're, we're talking about that now, too, in almost every aspect, aren't we? Fear and loathing. Well, they were to me, but I just, uh, one of the letters I got the other day, the first sane one I've had in about four months, mm -hmm. came from a guy who said, uh, now I know where fear and loathing came from. It's, it's, there's a quote in The Web and the Rock, Thomas Wolfe's mm -hmm. thing, that ends up with this great fear and loathing yeah. in his heart. And I had to write the guy and say, no, I never read that, I'm sorry, which was true. But it's hit. Well, the, the fear, that, that was fear and loathing in the, in the heartland of the American dream. That was, that's, all, that's the only way you can look at Las Vegas. And this is Wolf writing in the late 30s. And he was talking about 40s. North Carolina and his, his yeah. home. Yeah, Asheville. But there yeah. it was. 
Heartland. So we talked to an, another Heartland. You were in Miami, uh, both conventions. And uh, you being Hunter Thompson also are there. And you had a cassette and there's a vet. Suppose you describe the scene. This is outside, this is during the Republican convention? Yeah. Suppose you set the scene, because we're in the voice of a young paraplegic vet. You set the scene. Where was this and what? Well, the Fountain Blue was the, uh, that monster hotel. It was the press headquarters and sort of the, uh, the Vortex Hotel. Where during the, well, during both conventions, the Doral was the candidate's headquarters. Uh, McGovern, and during McGovern's, during that convention, it was open. During Nixon's, it was totally closed. It was like a, sealed off like a, you know, police uh, barracks or some kind. But the Fountain Blue was where all the, you know, press conferences were held and all the ceremonies went on. So that's where the demonstrations were. And it was on a Tuesday afternoon when Nixon was coming in to town. So, the, so the, and there was also a floor fight of some kind, a credentials fight down at the convention hall. So the uh, most of the press was at the, either at the convention hall or out at the uh, airport waiting for Nixon to come in. I remember seeing Mailer right before these guys, these twelve hundred veterans came up up to the Fontainebleau, and he was going to watch twelve hundred veterans. Well, everybody was leaving yeah. to either go watch. Nixon come in or watch this floor fight mm -hmm. about whether in 76 the liberals or conservatives would control the convention. And for some reason I figured that was a nice day to, for me to go swimming. And I was starting out when I passed this incredible uh, parade of this dead, silent 1,200 veterans with moving up Collins Avenue, which is the main and only you know, big thoroughfare in Miami Beach. Uh, without a word, except that kind of rattling of canteen tops and that thump of you know boot leather, very orderly, very disciplined, and they gathered in front of the uh, the Fontainebleau after about it took them about an, an hour to march to it, and said we want to we want to come inside. And they were facing about a thousand cops. So during the speech, Ron Kovic, there were several speeches made, and as, as always, the demonstrators sort of make too many speeches and. Uh, it sort of peters out. Th this was the, the high point of it. And what you have to remember when you listen to this is that everybody in the, in the crowd, which was, there must have been 10,000 people there, oh, more like 2,000 cops, all fate, you know, elbow to elbow with their bully clubs held at port arms, and this Ron Kovic, this paraplegic, facing him about six feet away, but actually talking to the Fontainebleau where all the delegates were in the press or whatever was left of the press. And what they had said was, when, when we finished these speeches, we're coming in. So the what people were expecting was uh, a really a nightmare situation where the Florida State Police would be filmed beating up these, you know, one-legged paraplegics, these people, uh, you know, wounded Vietnam vets. This, these were the vets against the war. And as it turned out, Pete McCloskey was the only politician there who would come in and talk to him. And he sort of came out, and it turned out they really didn't want to go in there anyway. They just wanted to make to be turned away on tele on national television. The irony of it was that there was almost no national television I there. I was just about to ask you: Was the speech we're about to hear was that heard or seen on national? Almost TV? not at all. No, no. Because see, With Nixon all was just coming coverage in. of the convention. This wasn't heard. So there's a uh, there's a sound in the background also of helicopters. That just so the audience will know. Well, the ten the level of tension was so high, that and the and the kind of sense of horror of impending disaster and violence was so pervasive that they brought in uh, army helicopters to circle to try to drown out these speeches because they blocked off all six lanes of Collins Avenue. And this was a very impressive group. It's, there was no ragtag... Uh, so, suppose we hear the... And you taped this on the cassette. You no, actually, there. I didn't. Somebody from KPFA in Berkeley did but this. KPFA Pacifica station did. And this is this is the scene you just said. Uh, this guy, Ron, the paraplegic Ron guy. Kovic. He was Kovic. a spokesman for... The disabled vets, the others for the more political ones. And this is what happened on that day. Here. Today I'm supposed to talk about the role of the wounded veteran or the plight of the disabled veteran. I guess I'm supposed to say what it's like to be a disabled veteran. And all I can do is think about Think about three weeks ago when I was in the Los Angeles County Jail. 
That's right, I was in the Los Angeles County Jail three weeks ago in my wheelchair. And brothers and sisters, I've never been to jail before. I've always been a good boy. machine gun and I got chills up and down my spine every night when I saw that marine raise up and down that flag after the late late movies and heard the Star Spangled Banner yeah I was always a good boy brothers and sisters when I sat in that jail cell in LA I wondered why I was sitting in there and I guess I'm a what you call a disabled veteran of Vietnam I don't know what that means. And I don't know what too many things mean anymore anyway. Because this system and this leadership has done their damnedest and their best to break you and me, brothers, to crush our bodies, to destroy our spirit. But we all know that they will never break us.
Okay, brother, sit down, please. I'm not trying to tell you folks that we slept on the land on this trip. I'm trying to tell you that the reason I haven't shaved in the last week and a half is because I haven't had time to shave. Because I feel a commitment. I feel like we're right in what we're doing and we goddamn know it. We have lost too many people. You have lied to us too long. Too many babies have burned. We are not stupid. We have brains that we can think. You might have taken our body, but you have not taken our mind. Pretty powerful stuff. And of course, I think Hunter Thompson is my guest, and this is the voice of a young paraplegic, but Moran, Ron, uh, Kovic. Ron Kovic. The Marine Sergeant. Uh, outside the convention hall, and I'm thinking about media for the moment. And all the networks and their almost 24-hour coverage of every detail of every pimple of everything, and no coverage of this. So, we well, you know, that was a genius of Nixon all the way through the campaign. He, he somehow managed to get his his side of the story covered. The reason that well, they had uh, all the networks had one, you know, sort of A crew and then a B crew. The B crew was assigned to the the Pont Blue for you know, this sort of thing, you know, d- demonstrations. Whatever might turn up, the A crew was almost always on whatever you know, the big story I'm was in the day. Uh, I'm well, in this case, of the B crew was out. Yeah, Nixon was coming into the airport, but so I'm the B think, crew was gone. Yeah. But you know, I'm thinking really more than Nixon. I'm thinking the media itself. I'm the beyond, over and beyond. I'm talking about NBC, CBS, uh, ABC, uh, the papers. You know, the cover. I'm thinking about as we come back to that. Why your reportage is different, you know. We come back to the non-coverage of the campaign, really, in a sense, it amounts to that, doesn't it? Well, it depends what you, well, what you call the campaign. Now, according to a lot of people, this wasn't the campaign. This yeah. was a freakish development. To me, it was a very definite part yeah. of the campaign. It was one, yeah. of the, one of the high points of politics yeah. in the past yeah. year. I think it depends on your own point of view as to what the campaign you know, constitutes, yeah. what it's made yeah. up of. Other, uh, Jack Kiffner, the guy from the New York Times, Johnny Kiffner, Chicago, yeah. he was there. Yeah. Obviously, the guy from, from KP, KPF there, A, was yeah. there. Uh, Lucian Truscott from the Village Voice was there. Yeah. Because you're naming see, certain individual journalists who are very good, yeah. you know. But there are only about five of us there, really, yeah. in yeah. terms of journalism. Yeah. That's the point. Because the, the main stories that day were the uh, was this credentials fight and then Nixon's arrival with the, yeah. uh, the 4,000 Nixon youth choir singing you know, at the uh, Miami. Uh, International Airport. Hunter, where does this, you've written the book, uh, the coverage, Rolling Stone, where does this leave us? Now it's 1973. Uh, on the day of this particular conversation, uh, Nixon's come out in favor of capital punishment, uh, as he puts it, without pity. So wh- wh- where does this, where do you see? I'm not asking you to be a prophet, a Nostradamus, what, what, what next, where to what next, you know, Sandberg's phrase. I spent about the last three days talking about that with uh, Sam Brown, who was the uh, the student coordinator for McCarthy in '68, and mm-hmm. he's now he lives in Colorado now, and he he ran the anti Olympics campaign, and he was over at the house in uh, Woody Creek for about three. We, we, we're trying to figure out just what we should do. I'm thinking of running for the Senate in Colorado. You you live in Colorado? Yeah, I thought I might run for the Senate. You run for the Senate? Might be a trip. I'm asking yeah. you to describe your campaign for sheriff in a moment. It won't be like that. <laughs> that was a little too heavy. But uh, Sam's theory, he was one of the best organizers in the country by anybody's lights, that within two or three years we'll have to have internal passports, you know, uh, documents to move around, which uh, is... The way blacks have in South Africa. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and it, his theory is that it'll be based on the uh, airplane, you know, the hijacking thing. Mm-hmm. All, all other moves they've made or theories or you know, plans to... Uh, Try to stop it, it failed. And traveling on airplanes now is really a hellish thing. It's mm-hmm. gotten to the point where it's, it's a nightmare to travel. That sounds insane, but uh, you have to just think about it. It makes perfect sense in a way. You have internal passports. If yours is lifted, what you may as well get a job. Passports. Well, in order to travel from Chicago yeah. to, to Denver or New York to uh, LA, you have to have the uh, what cart uh, identity, that sort of thing. So you and Sam Brown see that as a possibility? I hadn't until Sam started talking about mm-hmm. it, but uh, it's hard to argue with. I mean, it's too logical and too easy. It makes perfect sense uh, as a deterrent to having, you know, freaks, loonies, unreliable people on airplanes. 
And so we're trying to figure out whether we should try to launch a sort of a locally based radical, not left radical so much, but just radical mm-hmm. kind of campaign in Colorado. Uh, I'd really, I'd kind of hate to run because the nightmare is I might win. That is that what could we talk about? That? You say you, you're going to run for the state senate, right? Oh, not the state. Oh, no. You mean U.S. Senate? Oh, absolutely. Well, what makes you think you time. might? Well, now, now you're saying something interesting here. Could you give us a, what makes you think that you might? That's what I want to know. I'm, I'm looking for hope. <laughs> what do you think that you might have a chance? This is fine. Uh, how? Well, I think McGovern blew a tremendous advantage that he started off with by not appealing to. Oh. You can't say the new vote or the youth vote, but there's uh, Fred Dutton in, in his book on, on American politics makes the point that Nixon won in 68 with uh, fewer votes than he lost by in, in 60. And in his last campaign, there were, uh, for the first time in I don't know how long, in I think 30, lost in 30, right, yeah. In other words, the, the number yeah. of voters is shrinking. And in this last campaign, in 39 states, there were more people voting for senator and governor than they voted for president. There's a, uh, a fantastic dropout vote, which is really what nobody picked up on this time. It isn't. Not, it wasn't necessarily the 20 or 18 to 24 types. It's people who've just turned off politics, and uh, that can be documented in any kind of figure. You it's mean the, the voting turnout was quite low? Oh, and, yeah. and much lower for yeah. president. Yeah. People would go in and actually pull the levers for other yeah. things, not for uh. president. I think uh, McGovern blew the chance that he had in the primaries when he was seen as the, this maverick politician who would actually get the system by the ears and shake it. Uh, when he, oh, he did things like endorsing Hanrahan here in Chicago and Louise Day Hicks in Boston and going down to uh, have these little chats with LBJ at the ranch and. Uh, the McGovern campaign never had any real direction. They had the, the best troops that ever been, ever been put in the field politically. So you're seeing some now. This is the, perhaps as we near the end of the hour. There's something you're seeing here. You're seeing that intangible or that very tangible vote that wasn't there, that people are dis- looking for a change. I think so. I think one of one of the points in that was uh, you saw Wallace, who picked up so much strength that he didn't have the time and the foresight to even get delegates to uh, represent it. But then we come to the question that we change for, that is, uh, depending what it is you hit them with, you know, uh, appeal to, to the something new, though. base that's sense, or whatever point. it is, or against need, something yeah, else. We, we don't need any more Muskies yeah. or Humphreys yeah, or, course. I don't think even Ted Kennedy's, yeah. you know, or Connolly's for that matter. Yeah. Uh, what, what politics in this country has become is a, uh, a mockery and a, uh, just a bad joke on what it was supposed to be in the first place. When you talk, we look, look back at, at the uh, you know, the Bill of Rights and the Declaration of Independence, we, we've, we've become a mockery of ourselves. And although Wallace said, and he says that in a different way, but the energy that's out there to change the system in this country, I think is almost immeasurable. I think it, Perhaps it's, it's, it's frightening and it's also, it's uh, Your point is go either way, depending yeah. upon the appeal, go either way. I think people are just tired of yeah. the same old trope. You, you just said something, Pep, that's the, near the end of the program, this comment just made, the energy is there. You see, oh, we're yeah, told yeah. a lot about apathy. You're saying there's tremendous energy underneath. Well, it depends apathy, on which way uh, it's channeled. If you're told you have a duty to, uh, to buy a car tomorrow, but it has to be either a Ford or a Chevy, then uh, that's a, you know, that, that would get me pretty apathetic. I'd say to hell with it. But uh, I think what we need is something else. We need that, that open Ford or Chevy or. And now we're talking about choice. Now you're talking yeah, about the question the of the choice. System, the system precludes yeah. that in a sense. Yeah. It doesn't really. It, it's, it's laziness. It's, it's yeah. the apathy that precludes the, the choice. I think uh, you can run on almost any kind of weird, a strange platform. And uh, as long as it it wasn't a, you know, either dishonest or promised, you know, the, one of these pie in the sky things. I think the next big-time national politician who comes along and runs on a, a realistic platform to really shake the system around will cause a lot of trouble. He might mm-hmm. not win, but he'll have a veto power over whoever does win. Hunter Thompson is my guest, and uh, the forthcoming book based upon his uh, dispatches, very excellent ones in uh, Rolling Stone, is Fear and Loathing Along the Campaign Trail. 72, it tells us more than about a campaign, but about ourselves at this moment in history. 
Any other thought comes to your mind, Hunter, before we say goodbye once more? I think the cover is one of my favorite cover. things. Why, why don't, uh, I don't want to describe it, but a friend of mine did that. And, uh, what is that? Why don't you want to Well, the cover, we'll describe the cover. It's uh, red, white, and blue, stars, and it's a, skele- a skull. It's a death's head, yeah. A death's head. And illustrations, Ralph Steadman. There are illustrations in it by Ralph Steadman. Yeah. Well, he didn't do Tom Benton, a friend of mine in Aspen, did the cover. The theory is that the cover is so nasty that the book won't sell, even though it might be good, with the swastikas rising in the eyes. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, there it is. Oh, I think you should. Stars and stars. I'm looking at it now. <laughs> or straight I out. Heard, I can hardly wait to see that thing for sale in the uh, bookstore in the uh, Senate office building. Oh, I know the last phrase. Just, just, you want to see this for sale in the Senate office building. You've played, you travel uh, first class on the plane, and you have that cassette with you. We heard the voice of Ron, the paraplegic vet. You play it now, and then it's heard over the, throughout the cabin. Not uh, for very long, but uh, always. Yeah, always what play. are the reactions? Well, it's a disturbing and uh, rude thing to do to uh, insult these comfortable first class passengers with this paraplegic yelling at uh, the Fontainebleau Hotel. And uh, I'm almost always threatened either with being arrested or. Uh, ostracized or both I always play it through I didn't you know by the time I finish or by the, by the time it finishes they we, we come to sort of a standoff mm-hmm. I'd like to play it for him I think we should hear that. more of it so uh, basically we come back to what Hunter Thompson is <laughs> I got Dr. Hunter S. Thompson I like it because you know every PhD was an educated administrator and uh, you know the guy who re- re- who was the hero anti-hero of Fred Wiseman's high school these guys who just dead in the spirit all called doctor Doctor. Hair doctor. Yeah, hair doctor. This is Dr. Hunter S. Thompson. I like that. And um, I just thought of the phrase, you. of course, you're a disturber. You're a disturber of the placid, and that's probably what a journalist is all about and should be about today. Well, that's not what the uh, Wes Gallagher from AP says. Oh. There are two very definite schools in journalism today, coming, mm-hmm. coming almost to a, uh, a heavy crossroads. Mm-hmm. I happen to think there's room for both of them. I don't feel that I compete with either the AP or uh, James Reston. But a lot of people are very insulted by my kind of journalism. How can that crazy bastard get away with it, that sort of thing? But uh, I'm insulted by some of their stuff, too. Because you're unsafe and you disturb. And uh, thank you very much for disturbing. Thank you. Henry Thompson. Always good to kind of get back here and get in touch with uh, human beings.